Uh, Kelly Molman's going to come and read our scripture for this morning. And as Kelly's coming, um, I just want to set it up. Um, here you go, Kelly. Thank you. Please, please ascend the mount, the rite of passage. Um, last week, we started uh, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, the first half of Nicodemus chapter 3. If you missed that, you can listen online. Uh, it was a conversation about being born again, being born from above. And Jesus said, being born again, being divinely reborn, it's like the wind. This whole, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's like the wind. It's uncontrollable. It's not something you can uh, manipulate for your own ends. And as, as Kelly starts to read, Jesus is responding to Nicodemus, uh, saying, uh, you're Israel's teacher and you don't get that you can't control God. And then Jesus launches into really his first and longest discourse and teaching in John's gospel. So as Kelly reads the scripture for us, let's stand in honor of the words of Jesus. This is the gospel of John 3:11 through 21. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one will ever no one has ever gone into the heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of God. Just as Moses left, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Life, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, but will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what we have done has been done in the sight of God. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word and being the light in our lives. As we prepare for John to preach today, um, will you just open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Um, bless him as he teaches your word, that we may hear it with joy. Um, for what you want us to hear today. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, I've been on a little bit of a Star Wars kick. I mentioned uh, last week a Star Wars story and it just fit. So I'm going to tell another Star Wars thing. I, I had a, a moment with my kids, the older two, last week where I just needed to, like a positive incentive. I just needed to, we needed to get through an afternoon. And so I hadn't shown them the original Star Wars trilogy yet, and I thought, is this age appropriate? I don't really know. So I thought, I'm going to show it to them, and Dad's going to mute it, and you have to close your eyes whenever I say, and if you peek, the movie's over. So uh, we started, we started the, the movies together with the kids. And I would say I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, I, I really like the movies. My friend Jason Young designed these mugs that are on Society6. He did some Star Wars fan art, so that's really cool. I have a Darth Vader mug, and he has red eyes, and I always drink from my Darth Vader coffee mug on Monday mornings. It just feels appropriate. Uh, but it's funny, with something like Star Wars, which is such a, a worldwide phenomenon, uh, there's a, this huge market for 
fan art and fan fiction. Um, and so, in fact, this, so fan fiction is people will take the characters that we all know and love, the plot lines, and then they'll write their own. They'll make up their own. So I Googled Star Wars fan fiction yesterday, and I found this one website that had 38,000 different Star Wars fan fiction plot lines, and like 10,000 of them were Todd Craig, um, <laughs> which was just, you know, wow, only 10,000. But for, for Star Wars nerds, there's a conversation about, okay, what's, what's canon? What counts as like official Star Wars story, and what's not canon? So, as, you know, as they lead up to a new movie, there's all these conversations and back-and-forth YouTube videos about, like, clues we've gotten in different Star Wars stories and cartoons and things over the years. And the conversation is, what's canon, what's not canon? What's reliable and is definitely a part of the official storyline, and what's just people having fun? Um, and, and to resolve this question, they appeal to authority. Well, uh, what's the author have to say? Or what does the director have to say? What do the people who control the materials officially have to say about what counts as like this is authoritatively part of the storyline and this is just people having fun and making up their own thing? They appeal to the author and the director and the owner. And I think about the idea of, of fan fiction when it comes uh, to God. Um, there are narratives, there are storylines that people have come to believe about God that represent what God is like. And there are stories that are out there that are true. And there are stories that are, that are out there that may be well-intentioned but are misguided and some that are flat-out wrong and some that are just, some are evil. Um, we want to examine the narratives that we believe about God and determine whether they're true or false. One narrative about God that's out there is God's an angry judge or the behavior of God is, is basically karma, that if, you, if you're a nice person and you do good stuff, God's going to hook you up. And if you're mean you're going to get punished for it. And so you start to wonder, like, okay, if something bad happens in my life, what did I do to make this happen? That's one narrative that people believe about God. Um, one, this is so funny. I was trying to think of, of narratives, false narratives about God. I thought, God is a total buzzkill. And one of my least favorite things as a pastor is when it looks like people are having fun and then I walk up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can't have that conversation anymore because the right reverend is here. <laughs> I hate that. It's when I realize, oh, I guess I am a pastor. I'm killing all of the fun. But some people think God is a total buzzkill. They think Je Jesus is the total opposite of what happened at the wedding in Cana. We have no conception of Jesus who brought 180 gallons of wine to the party. Think of God as being a total buzzkill. C.S. Lewis had this great quote. He said, joy is the serious business of heaven. God is a buzzkill. That is a false narrative about God. Another false narrative is God doesn't care about what's going on in your life. But a lot of us passively think that, well, and you see it at like prayer request time. I don't really want to mention it. It's not that important. It's just me. I know I need to. God doesn't care about your life. That's a false narrative. That's not true. And I want to address why is it important that we think through whether we have the right narratives about God? Why does it matter that we get our narratives right? Why is it so important? We need to get our narratives right because we live out what we love and what we believe to be true about God. We live out of the narratives that we deliberately and passively assign to God. Do you remember the movie Space Jam? So there's this scene I hope that your takeaway today is to go watch Space Jam. 
there's this scene uh, in the climax of the movie where the Toon Squad is losing to the Monstars, and they're feeling like they're completely, uh, they're just being decimated and they've got no hope. And uh, I don't remember who it was, uh, perhaps Daffy Duck. I don't, ro- let's say, I was going to say Roger Rabbit. What's the bunny? No, no, no. Bugs Bunny takes this water bottle and he writes Michael's secret stuff in it, Michael Jordan's secret stuff, and he gives this bottle of water to all of the Toon Squad, and they suddenly believe they're great basketball players. They, they were living out of a narrative. They thought, we just got like Michael Jordan's X Factor, and now we're going to be awesome. We live out of the narratives that we believe. Um, when a kid believes that their parents or parent loves them, and that kid is going to have more grace for themselves. That kid's likely going to have more confidence, more resilience. When a kid knows my parents love me, uh, they're going to live out of that. Um, there's, there's stories going around about the kid who was the shooter uh, a few weeks ago in Florida. Uh, his mom died in November. And two other people went to the funeral. It was this kid and his brother and two other people went to the funeral. And, and I think, isn't that a kid who thinks I'm alone and no one cares about me? I'm alone and God doesn't care about me? We live out of what we love and we live out of what we believe to be true. That's why we've got to get our story right. We've got to get the narratives that we believe right. In fact, the week after Easter, on April 8th, we're going to start this, this learning experience called The Story, where for four weeks on a Sunday evening, we're going to look at God's story. Where, is it, where, where did the story start? Where is it now? Where is it going? We've got to get our story right. We'll start signups for that soon, uh, but, but I don't need to get sidetracked there. We live out of what we love and what we believe to be true. And so when we think about God, who says what's canon? Who says what's authoritative and reliable in our thinking and the narratives about God? We turn to the scripture uh, in Hebrews 12. Susan, let's put that up. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started this, and he's the one who's refining it. He's going to make it awesome. There's this verse embedded in the text that Kelly read about Jesus, uh, John 13, 3.13. It says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of God. Who's the one who has authority to represent to us, humanity, what's going on in divine reality? There has to be one who can do it. It's one who's come from heaven to us. Jesus is uniquely equipped to represent to us, what's true about God, those true narratives that we can take for canon and authoritative because Jesus alone has dual access to heaven and the earth. Jesus has unique privilege to represent what his Father is like and what the Spirit's doing in the world to us. Jesus alone represents God's true narratives. And so as we think about this text that we've just read in John chapter 3, I'm going to do a little exercise and ask ask the question reflecting on this text. What does Jesus demonstrate to be true, or what narrative about God and the world does Jesus represent? What narratives about God and the world does Jesus represent and affirm? And I'm going to look at five of them. The first one, tons of you have probably memorized John 3.16, and you did it in King James Version because you did it at church when you were little, or your grandma made you do it um, while you were at her house. God so loved the world. 
And there's the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. You hear something the same again and again and again, and you, it loses its meaning. What narrative does Jesus affirm about God and the world? First, that God loves the world. God loves the world. Now, if you, you, yeah, yeah. If your response is, yeah, like, sure. You don't get it. How do you, think about the person that you love the most in this world. How do you feel about that person? When that person succeeds, how do you feel? When that person suffers, how do you feel? And magnify it infinitely. God loves the world. I think, you know, in tons of weddings, you hear 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. And if God is love and love is patient, in that passage, could you separate God? Could you separate, or could you, could you insert the name of Jesus? Jesus is patient. God is kind. God is not envious. God's not boasting. God's not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs, perhaps. Wrestle with that. God does not delight in evil, but God rejoices with the truth. God always protects. God always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus affirms God loves the world. God wants the best for you. Do you believe that? We're programmed with karma. We wouldn't name it that. God wants the best for you. God wants for you to flourish. And I'm not saying in that in some kind of blind, like TV preacher kind of way. God desires for you to flourish because he made you and God loves you. And the evidence of this is, is in this verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Now, it's interesting that he said the word gave here. Elsewhere in this chapter and throughout John's gospel, he says sent. It could have said, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. But gave implies a gift. I want to bless you with this. I want to give this present to you, the gift of my son. For God so loved the world, for God so loved you that he gave the gift of his son, Jesus. The first narrative Jesus confirms about God is that God loves the world. The second narrative about God and the world that Jesus affirms is that God wants to rescue the world. Imagine seeing somebody in some form of peril. Uh, maybe it's like their car broke down and they're, they're trying to steer and push the car. This happened with Todd and me. We were down on Cherry Street a few weeks ago, and this dude was trying to push his car. He was in the middle of Peoria at like 14th. And just instinctively, not because we're awesome guys, but just because we know it would stink to like, like push your car uphill into the Whataburger or whatever it is, we just hop out, run down, and there were like four other guys who joined in. And we all pushed this guy into the Whataburger parking lot so he's out of, out of danger and he wouldn't be vulnerable and exposed. Uh, we just helped him out. Or imagine if you, were at a, if you were like at a pool party and you saw a little kid struggling or, or drowning, God forbid. Doesn't matter what you're wearing. Doesn't matter if your iPhone's in your pocket. You're getting in. God wanted to rescue the world. Now imagine that it's not just a kid, but it's your kid. Man, imagine the incentive, the, the fire in your bones to rescue that child. Since God made and loves the world, God wants to rescue the world. How much more than us does God want to rescue the world that he made? And I love verse 17. This is such basic stuff that we overlook. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. 
but to save the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The purpose of Jesus' coming was not condemnation. It was salvation. He didn't send him to condemn. He sent him to save, to save the world through him. The second thing Jesus affirms about God is that God wants to rescue the world. The third thing that Jesus affirms is that the world needs rescuing. Jesus wouldn't need to come and rescue if we weren't in need of rescuing. Uh, when I was a little kid, um, I had a friend named Michael Belmore, and Michael lived right across the street. And then when I was like six, we moved to our new house, and we had a pool in the backyard, and we had Michael over to swim, and he wasn't a real strong swimmer. I can't explain what, what happened, but when Michael's mom came over, for whatever reason, I pushed him into the pool. But because I had a guilty conscience, I jumped in right after him, and I rescued him. God's not like that. Some of you believe it. God shoved us into the deep end and then rescued us to take the credit. That's not like that. We need rescuing from the evil that we've inherited, so we call original sin, the compounding, um, the compounding complications of a, a world of people who have chosen to rebel against our Creator. Jesus rescues us from the evil that we've inherited, but also the evil that we've contributed to the, by the things that we've done and not done, the things that we've said and not said, the thoughts that we've had and the thoughts we should have had, the motivation we should have had. We need rescuing from this evil that we've inherited and this evil that we have contributed to. And admitting the fact that we need rescuing feels like we're being condemned. Admitting that we need rescuing feels like God's pointing a big finger at us. I, you see, I'm just, I'm kind of gulping. I didn't drink enough water this morning, which is not a surprise to Emily Odom. And for the last five years or so, Emily Odom has been saying, did you drink water today? And most of the time, the answer is no. Most of the time, I've only had coffee in a given day. Um, and Emily is confronting me with this because, uh, one, I've got a genetic disposition toward getting kidney stones. Never had a kidney stone, but Emily's like reading the tea leaves and knows if this guy only drinks coffee and doesn't drink water, he's going to get kidney stones, and I'm going to be mad that I'm right when it happens. <laughs> but then there's the other thing of just, about just day-to-day -day flourishing. If you drink water, sure, you have to go to the bathroom more, but your body works. Your body needs it. And so every time Emily comes to me and says, John, you've got to drink water, I feel condemned. But I'm not condemned because of Emily. I'm condemned because of my own actions. I'm condemned because when she brings it up, I'm aware of, dang it, I forgot, or I didn't want to, and now we have to talk about it. <laughs> Emily did not come to condemn. Emily came to give life. <laughs> She's like, duh. <laughs> I feel condemned, but it's not Emily's fault. It's because there's something within me that I, that I know. Emily came to rescue. Jesus did not come to condemn, but the fact that we feel condemned, that some of us feel condemned in the way that we think about God is not God's fault. The fact that we feel condemned is not on God, it's on us. And then embedded in this text, Jesus makes this really weird Old Testament reference. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, you know, you know how Moses was just lifting up the snake that day? That doesn't make any sense. It comes from Numbers 21, when the people of Israel were, uh, were in the wilderness. They're making their way from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, and they found that they've been bitten by, by serpents. And this venom is infecting their body. 
And Yahweh says to Moses, make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and lift it up. He says, everyone who looks at that snake and trusts that by doing the thing that Yahweh said, looking to the snake, would make them well, it would make them well. Jesus says, in the same way that Moses lifted up that snake in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that leads to the next point. For God rescues the world through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. It's funny that the snake is used as a kind of hero here. When the snake is like the number one most vile character in the Bible. Go to Genesis 2 and 3. The snake's the bad guy. The snake is like the one who we blame for, all, for this mess, for deceiving Adam and Eve. Snake's the, the absolute worst character. And God would rescue the world through association with the absolute worst. And I think that's the bridge to what Jesus was getting at. This is what is called a passion prediction. Jesus was sowing the seeds that in this similar way to the snake being lifted up, he was going to be physically lifted up. In the same same way this snake had for Israel the worst connotations, the worst association, Jesus would be lifted up in association with the worst among the people. That he would be lifted up and crucified. People who get crucified are bad people. And he did it with criminals, common criminals on his left and on his right. God would rescue the world through association with the absolute worst. Jesus would be humiliated for the life of the world. And the beauty of what Jesus did on the cross forever repurposed this instrument, which was a sign of imperial dominion, which was a sign of shame and embarrassment. If you're associated with this, people distance themselves from you, and it's been repurposed into something of beauty, repurposed into something that a person would wear around their neck to grace their neck. People make a cross, a decoration, and a home, and people even make the sign of a cross in their body. Can you imagine making the sign of a lynching, making the sign of a guillotine? The beauty of what Jesus did by being lifted up in association with the absolute worst of humanity forever repurposed this image into something beautiful. So that it's funny, a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm not Catholic. I've never been, you know, Catholic. One time in worship at a church, man, I felt my heart wanting to cross myself. Isn't that funny? I, like, I didn't know where it came from, and I was embarrassed because I was... Like, I didn't know what to do with that, so I'm like looking to the left and right. But I find myself, even, even with you, wanting to do it more than I do. The beauty of what Jesus did by being lifted up is such that I want my life, my body, to be marked in that way. Paul said in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God rescues the world through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And five, uh, God's rescue through Jesus enables us to experience eternal life. Uh, we live into that rescue, and rescue is an ongoing thing. I'm still being rescued from what ails me. I'm still being rescued. But we live into that rescue by continuing to say yes to Jesus, letting Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, live in us, learning to live in that cross-shaped, gospel-shaped kind of life. 
And notice what's missing from this passage. It doesn't say that whoever believes in him would have eternal life once they die and go to heaven. It doesn't say that. In fact, if anything, there's, there's more of a present tense reality for both salvation and condemnation in this text. And it makes the case that eternal life is not just something that we would inherit when we die. Honestly, if that's it, I mean, that's great, but we have to wait a lifetime for it. It's like, yeah, I'll let you have heaven, but you've got to live a miserable 85 years until then. No, eternal life or life in the age to come is supposed to be a present tense reality. When God's future is breaking into our present, God transforms our our character and our bent so that we're conformed to the image of Christ. The gift of the Spirit was supposed to help us transform into the image of Christ so that Jesus thought it was better that he would ascend to the Father and send the Spirit because there wouldn't be just one Jesus walking around. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There would be a sea of people full of the person and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But it also makes the case that condemnation is a present tense reality, that like me, foregoing the water that would make me well, we again and again reject the help that God offers That in the presence of Jesus, we feel condemned, not because he points the finger, but because we're aware of our own inadequacies. Condemnation is a present tense reality, but eternal life is also a present tense reality that God is bringing into the, the present from the future. And we experience that through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through our cooperation with the work of the Spirit, saying yes to Jesus. And I see again and again in John's gospel, the power of intention. Jesus asked the question, What do you want? Do you want the rescue that Jesus offers? Jesus asks the sick man, do you want to be well? And he asks us just the same. And so as we come to the table, we have this opportunity to say again and again and again, yes, Jesus, I need your rescue. Whatever you've got to offer, I want. We can say that as you come down and make it your prayer. Whatever you've got to offer, I want. Uh, if those who are going to help us serve would go ahead and come up. Um, uh, the communion table is, is something we, we share, we celebrate every week. We tell the story of the gospel, of not just Jesus who died for us, who was lifted up for us, but Jesus who was resurrected and lifted to the highest place. And Jesus is now at the right hand of his Father interceding for you, praying for you. And we believe that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is present with us here. And so we, we gather to remember the story. We gather to, remember, to remind each other of those narratives that are worth building your life around. And we gather, once again, just to be nourished by the person of Jesus. And so let's pray as we come. Lord Jesus, we just say that we don't even have the insight into ourselves to know how far we've drifted from you. We don't have the presence of mind to understand how deeply we need rescuing. And so to feel condemned is in itself a grace because we know we need to look outside of ourselves for rescue. So Jesus, as we come, we come with humility. Pray that you'll search our hearts, that you'll reveal to us, an even greater extent, the ways in which we need your rescue and how you're at work in our lives. Remind us and assure us that you love us, that through faith in your son Jesus, we're adopted into the family. 
And uh, Lord, we, we are confident your spirit is with us. Pour out your spirit on this bread and this wine. Make it be for us the means by which we experience your presence and turn us in this room into the body of Christ so that we can be for the world a sign of the renewal that you are bringing. In Jesus' name, amen.